Let's go to Hebrews chapter 5 this morning, Hebrews the fifth chapter, and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time we have together now. We believe that you are here. Your spirit is at work in our midst, and we ask you now to give us revelation of truth that makes us free. Thank you for the abundance of your grace and all of your ability. Lord, we receive now good things from above, from the Father of lights who doesn't change. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There are certain principles in the Word of God that must be in place in our lives if we are ever to go further than we are today. This is a basic foundation that some Bible truths are more important than other Bible truths in the sense of order in which they are established in our lives. Some might think that as long as we're studying the Bible, as long as we read the Scripture, It doesn't really matter what scripture you read. I mean, you can just pick any old scripture. I mean, it's all the Bible. And some have a really uh, novice approach to the Word of God to think in such terms. But really, the scripture points out very specifically certain parts of it that that are more essential for us than other parts. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but uh, um, one of my contentions with the way that some Christians are brought up in their development and relationship with God is that I think some people are taught the wrong thing. They're taught the wrong. Now, again, some think, well, how can that be? As long as they're taught the Bible, how can it be the wrong thing? Well, again, on this premise that some parts of the Bible are more important for us to understand initially and as a foundation than other parts. Many, many times people have been taught, and I have encouraged people along this way, you have, when, when someone first comes to the Lord, you instruct them, now it would be a good idea from this point on to begin to read the Bible every day. You've got to have a good diet of the Word of God to feed your faith, okay? But usually we instruct them because if we don't, they're likely to go to Leviticus or something, right? They're they're likely to go to some passage, some book of the Bible that they're not going to get a whole lot out of, at least at this point in 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 their walk with the Lord. And so, you know, people are often encouraged to read the book of John, something of that nature. We're trying to steer them away from Revelation and... (laughs) And, and things like that. Why? Because not that Revelation or Leviticus or any other book is uninspired or unimportant. They're very, very important. But just, it's not what you need right now. It's not what you need. You need to get a good, solid foundation to build upon that and, and, and go far. You know, likewise, we know this concerning natural buildings and structures that uh, if you don't have a good foundation, eventually you're going to have trouble up upstairs <laughs> you know and, and the built the, the larger you build if you're going to build high then you've got to have an even deeper and more 
firm and secure foundation to be able to handle that great thing. And it seems that in spiritual terms, now, many Christians reach a point in their life and they just don't go any further. They, 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 are, they are unable to, to rise higher and develop more, and it's simply because they are lacking some of those key components to what makes the spiritual and the Christian life work. And sometimes they go after the lofty things, go after the things that are way up there and way out there, yet without the proper uh, building blocks to get them there, they're never able to succeed. And so year after year, year after year, they stay in the same place at a low level of living. Now, when when I talk about uh, things that are essential and things that are necessary up front, I'm not talking about what has become popular necessarily in many church circles today. I mean, it's interesting. You can go to some churches and we're for them all, but you can watch some Christian television programs and the subject is all, for example, like it's all about diet. It's all about nutrition. You say, well, don't you believe in diet and nutrition? I eat regularly. (laughs) I I, (laughs) do. And I believe as a, as a natural thing in life, that kind of stuff is important. It's a valid subject. That's just not what we need in church. Huh? And people have elevated these secondary issues. And I think you could do a class in church. You could have a, a Bible study or, or whatever study. I guess you wouldn't call it Bible study. <laughs> a nutrition study, that would be fine and good. But when people replace the gospel with that kind of stuff. We've really missed it. When people emphasize things, uh, especially in the New Testament, that are specifically de-emphasized. I mean, if anything concerning a subject like that, we're told in the Word of God in the New Testament to watch out. We're warned that in the last days, people are going to make a real big deal of this. And they're going to tell you not to eat certain things. And yet when when something like that becomes a primary subject in church, we've missed it. That's not the foundation that causes us to grow. It's a side, secondary, third dairy <laughs> issue. <laughs> and, there, and there are other things. I just throw that out. But there are other things that are not to be the primary focus, you know, uh, um, even in, in scriptural terms. How many know when someone wants to grow in their walk and relationship with the Lord, it's not super essential that the first thing they learn is the order of end time events. And they get the rapture date figured out, and they get the pre, mid, and post thing all lined out, and they got their calendar. And well, now, now, am I saying that's unimportant? No, I'm not. It's it's those kind of things are biblical, and they are important, but they're not most important. They're not the things that cause us to grow and cause us to rise to the level of relationship with God that we're supposed to have. Much is missed if the first principles are absent. You ready for Hebrews 5? Did I miss something here? Uh, no, no talking without me. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 5, let's begin verse 12. Reads, for, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles 
of the oracles of God. Now, now, now notice that language. First principles. The, the what? The first principles. That word first there, it means a commencement. You think of like a graduation ceremony from high school or college. That It is a commencement ceremony. It is something that launches someone forward into the greater things that they want to accomplish in life. All right? He said, he, he said you need these first principles. That, that word means, like I said, a commencement. It means chief in various applications of order, time, place, or rank. And so we could very well say there are some principles that are more important that outrank in the, in the sense of order in people's lives. And if we don't recognize that, we could get this all confused and mixed up. All right. Now, when he said here, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, that gives us some understanding that chronological time does not equal development in spiritual things. It does not equal maturity. He said, you ought to be teaching this stuff by now. Right by now, he's telling these guys, you ought to be teaching this stuff, except you, you still need taught this yourself. Yet, by this time means you guys have been around a while. They're not talking, he's not talking to brand new Christians. He's not talking to people who just got saved. He's saying, you've been around a while. You've been saved for some time. You ought to be to this level, but you're not. You're still down here. And many times, I think in our day and age as well, people think they're further than they are. They want to be further than they are, but they're lacking some key components that will, compel, that will propel them to be in that place where they think they are, where they want to be, and where God wants them to be. Okay? And so... He said, that, that's the case, uh, reading on, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Obviously a reference to a baby who survives only on milk in the beginning. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Notice the language. What are we talking about here? Skill level. You can be skilled in the word of righteousness or you can be unskilled. You can know your way around, or you can be shooting in the dark. You can be skillful, you can be unskillful with the word of righteousness, just like you can with, uh, with tools, with weapons, with various things. People become skilled in an area. The word of righteousness is something we should all become skilled in. We have an expertise when it comes to the word of righteousness. Not an expertise when it comes to sin. Not an expertise when it comes to the world. Not an expertise when it comes to everything that's wrong. No, skilled in the word of righteousness. He said, for he is a babe. That means he's really good looking. <laughs> or infantile. Let's go with the latter. Verse 14, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. Full age. That is, what does it mean? In other words, what does full age mean? Those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So the person who is of full age, the person who can eat the good stuff, all right, the, the, the person, it, this person is one who has their senses exercised. 
How did they get them exercised? He said, by reason of use. So they've heard some good stuff. They've taken that good stuff and they've used it. They've exercised themselves accordingly and have become skilled. And so sometimes it's not a matter of what we've heard, what we've learned, but it is a matter of what we've taken and what we've put to use. Then we develop ourselves to become skilled. And I I don't know about you, but this is highly valuable to me. To be able to discern good and evil is of great value. To be able to look at a situation and correctly identify whether it's right or wrong, whether it's righteous or unrighteous. I don't like to be confused and and, and uncertain. I like my steps to be steady and sure. Uh, Years ago, I can remember this time in my life when I was, I recognized the call of God to, to, to teach, to preach the Word, and I was preparing to that end, but was not doing it yet. But I can remember the time when I was really concerned about the responsibility that was in my future. And here's my, here was my level of concern. I thought, I don't want to teach someone something wrong. I thought, I'm going to get in there and I don't know this enough. And I'm supposed to teach the Bible. What if I misinterpret a Bible scripture and I tell someone, this is what this means. And I'm saying it in the name of the Lord and it's the wrong thing. I was feeling the weight of that. And still to this day, it's a, it's a holy thing to me. And it's a great responsibility. But I found that as I became skilled in the word. That mean I, it doesn't mean all knowing by any means. But skilled in the word of righteousness, that concern was gone. And I knew, I'm not going to thrash the Word. I don't, uh, you know, I'm still growing in Revelation, but I'm not going to teach someone something wrong that's going to misrepresent God because of that development by reason of use. It is of great value. It's It's so nice to have that confidence knowing that you're going the right direction, knowing that you're making right decisions, you're doing things the right way. Uh, Look over, hold your finger there and look at Proverbs 24 with me. Proverbs chapter 24. Have you ever had someone come over to your house? Maybe for the first time they visited your your home and and you went out the front door and you met them in in front of your house and, and they were looking around and the first thing they said is, man, you have got the most amazing foundation." I mean, I've been looking at all the houses all around the neighborhood, and yours is by far the best foundation of any house I've seen. Well, I've never had that happen. If people don't typically notice and give much weight to the foundation of something, they look at what's external. They look at the, you know, the house, the siding, and the paint, and the windows, and the in, in, in the roof and the door and, and everything else and the landscaping and, and they, they, they comment or take in the image of, of your house. But they don't look at the foundation unless, of course, they're looking to buy and looking for trouble, right? Then that, that becomes important. But it's similar in life where we focus so many times all of our attention on the outward things. We don't give much attention to the foundation, but eventually what is in that foundation is going to show up in the rest of our house. If it, whether it's going to stand and, and last for the long term, whether it's going to have leaks and all that kind of stuff. And so although we're not, we don't naturally gravitate towards focusing on things that are unseen, things that are hidden, scripturally speaking, we ought to. 
We ought to give our attention to those things that are underneath, those things that are on the inside, because eventually they'll be seen on the outside. And when the Scripture here talks about first principles, these are things that we must learn that you can't look at a person and just quickly assess them and say, they've got the first principles established in their life. No, but you have to dig deeper. You have to look down to see what's there. In in Proverbs, the Scripture says here, 24, verse 3, through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Notice the key here. He didn't start with pleasant and precious riches. He didn't say by riches a house is built. He said by wisdom it's built. By understanding, it's established. It is, it, it is wisdom and understanding and knowledge that God wants to get inside of each and every one of us because then He can build something great in our, out of our lives. Amen. He can cause your life to be something, something amazing if you apply yourself to wisdom, to understanding. Take it and by reason of use, exercise yourself in, in relationship to it. Then we become skilled. Amen. We become developed. We become able to go further than we are. I don't want to cap my life. I don't want to put a lid on my, on my life where I can only go so far, but because of missing components down beneath, I'm not able to, to move on be, beyond the place that I'm at. Now, Hebrews 6, continuing there. Hebrews 6 and verse 1, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles or the first principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And and, and so he lists here some various issues that are called first principles in the Bible. And and I want to share with you a little bit today about repentance from dead works is anybody excited (laughs) I I, I wasn't really expecting a big hoopla but uh, (laughs) repentance from dead that is my favorite subject man that's the thing I I love to hear (laughs) yet in the bible an absence of knowing about this will limit our ability to go further an absence of the knowledge of this particular truth will keep a, a cap on our lives. We'll never be able to move forward like we want to. Let's look at Acts chapter 2 together, Acts the second chapter. This was one of the very first things mentioned in Acts to people wanting to be saved. The very first thing. It, it's quite absence in many people's lives, and in much teaching and preaching today, yet biblically, it's a pretty big subject. Now, Acts chapter 2, this is, of course, the day of Pentecost, and verse 38, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right. So it's very interesting. What was Peter's word by, inspired by the Lord to these people? He said, you guys need to repent. Repent. Amen. 
Now, uh, this subject can be quite confusing. Um, some have jumped on the repent bandwagon to such a degree that they, they completely misunderstand what it means. And in fact, I get letters from time to time, have over a number of years, because there's different individuals out there uh, in various states, but they write handwritten letters and photocopy them and send them to all the pastors. They're really cheesy looking. <laughs> but try, they feel like it's their obligation to urge pastors to try to get everybody to repent. They feel like there's just great sin in most of the body of Christ. Everyone needs to repent. And their understanding of it is not correct. And sometimes then it comes to some other issues that they want to fix in the body of Christ. And so they're urging in their cheesy letters uh, uh, all the pastors to do this and not knowing that no one is moved by that at all. Zero. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, this subject is a very valid subject that we must understand. Now, first of all, let's take a look at this verse. This has caused some confusion in people's minds because of the English words that are used. It's translated in such a way where it almost seems like it contradicts the rest of the New Testament. And whenever you find a verse that seems like it does that, it's always a good idea to take the majority and don't take the one and interpret the rest, right? Okay, and, and here's why it does that. Notice, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. See that word for, F-O-R, for the remission of sins. It almost looks like I'm not saved until I'm baptized. That my sins aren't actually forgiven until I'm or remitted until I am baptized in water. Isn't that, isn't that what that looks like? Yet, but yet you see through a majority of Scripture that it puts it the other way around, yet this one seems to make this a requirement, and this is why some have gotten on the bandwagon that you're not actually going to heaven until you've been baptized in water, and usually what follows that is you have to be baptized according to a certain formula. You have to say these exact words. You have to be baptized exactly this way. And if you're not, you are going to hell. Yeah. And there are some Christians that really believe that not like 95% of those who call themselves Christians uh, uh, are really not saved. And it all comes back to down to this verse and they didn't get baptized right. And that doesn't seem right. Does that seem right to you? Because we're in trouble. <laughs> But listen, this word for, F-O-R, it comes from a Greek word, E-I-S, E-I-S, say it however you want. You won't go to hell if you get it wrong. Uh, and, and this word can mean because of, as a result of, or since. It can also mean so as to obtain, but of course it has to be taken in the right context. So what's the, ver what's the verse saying? Um, the, 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 ver the verse is saying, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of or as a result of the remission of your sins. Everybody see that? And how, how, that, make, how that makes a big difference? Why should we repent? Because our sins have been washed away. 
we hear the gospel and find that Jesus died for us and gave his life and abolished all the sin and took care of all that junk, therefore I should repent. Therefore I should be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. How many see that's consistent? You can see, for example, in Acts chapter 10, there was a group of people that when they were hearing the gospel, the Spirit fell upon them. They, they were saved. They were born again. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues. And all this happened before they were baptized in water. And so you, when you see examples of that, you realize what they're actually saying and communicating here in, in, in Bible verses like this. And so when we talk about this... Um, word now repentance and say this is essential and if you don't have this man you are stuck you're not going any further you are capped in your spiritual life unless you get this I think we should understand it he says repentance from dead works repentance literally means now the Greek word means a change of mind it means that we change our thinking from one way of thinking to another way of thinking all right, that's different than just when everybody is in some gross sin that you need to repent. Now, we're not for sin. We'll get to that. But, but repentance can take place in this service today in this regard, not just in those who are going to hell and want to go to heaven, not those who want to get right with God, but those who find themselves with a thinking system and process with beliefs that are different from the Lord. What do you need to do? Repent. Need to repent of that wrong thinking, meaning change the direction of how you think about things. And from that standpoint, how many know we can have repentance going on all the time around here? No sackcloth and ashes, but repentance. True biblical repentance. I like what a man named uh, Rick Renner said about this word. He's an expert in Greek. Um. He said, the word repent comes from the Greek word, uh, I'll say it my best, best way I can, metan, something like that, <laughs> metanoio, if I, say, if I use all the letters, which is a compound of meta, I can do that one, and, and these are the nouns, of course, meta and nous, N-O-U-S. He said, the word meta means to turn. And the word nous means one's mind, intellect, will, frame of thinking, opinion, or general view of life. When the words meta and nous are combined together, the new word depicts a decision to completely change the way one thinks, lives, or behaves. This doesn't describe a temporary emotional sorrow for past actions. Rather, it is a solid intellectual decision to turn about face and take a new direction to completely alter one's life by discarding an old destructive pattern and embracing a brand new one. True repentance involves a conscious decision both to turn away from sin, selfishness, and rebellion, and to turn toward God with all of one's heart and mind. It is a complete 180-degree turn in one's thinking and behaving. Isn't that an excellent definition and description of this word repent? Now, I think it's important for us to realize that there is a positional 
and a practical outworking of our forgiveness and how we relate to the Lord. Most of us know and should know, if you don't, you should know, that in Christ, through the finished work of the cross, our sins have been completely washed away. Everything in the past, everything in the present, and even those things in the future, they've already been paid for. If that weren't the case, then after you get saved, if you sin again, Jesus has to go back to the cross to pay for those sins. So we know, I mean, this is a wonderful and valid and important Bible truth that our sins, past, present, and future, have been washed away. Now, that's, that is a positional truth in Christ that we should be, again, well aware of. But on a practical level, how do we deal with things that are inconsistent with God's character, nature, and love that reside in our lives? Do we just, and some have approached this type of thing, I think, in a real mechanical type of way to where we just know, well, my sins are washed away in Jesus. And so whenever they find themselves thinking wrong, going in a wrong direction, they pretty much just ignore it. And it's not without basis. It's not completely wrong. It's just they say, well, my sins are forgiven in Christ. And so they do nothing. I'm not real sure that's helpful. For example, uh, Amy and I are married legally. We are in a position where we are legally bound to each other. And if I mistreat her, if I do her wrong, I could just step back and say, well, it's not like we're not married. It's not like the way I treated her, how I did her wrong. That didn't abolish the relationship. We are still legally married, so I could just continue on. How many think that's a good idea? (laughs) If I treat her wrong, I should not only be aware of the legalities of this, the fact that our relationship is established by law, I should also be aware of the practicality and the the relationship side of this to to, to know that I'm not helping or literally I'm hurting our interaction and our ability to walk together as one if I don't say something or do something about my mistreatment of her. Does that make sense? And so though I'm not concerned that if I do something wrong, if I treat her wrong, I'm not concerned that our marriage is dissolved, but I do want to have an ongoing fellowship and relationship with her likewise with the Lord I can just say hey my sins are washed away in Christ and just ignore it and go on or I can know that I'm talking to a person here I am relating to a father who loves me and yes my relationship is not on the line he's not going to kick me out because I did something wrong but yet it's still kind of rude if I don't deal with things in a relational way Amen. And so that would be the foundation that we should be aware of. It's kind of like uh, the story of Joseph. You can read in Genesis 39. Remember, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ended up working for Potiphar. And he was his servant, but he ended up having great authority in his house. But Potiphar's wife was a bad lady. 
And she came after Joseph one day and she was uh, trying to entice him sexually and get her to sleep, get him to sleep with her. And he's saying, no, I can't do this. And he mentioned that Potiphar had given him authority in this house and, and, and he'd be in big trouble. But what, what always stood out to me was Joseph said, how can I do this thing and sin against my God? In other words, he wasn't just mindful of the natural repercussions of what his behavior would bring to him. He acknowledged that God was in his life. He had a relationship with God, and he didn't want to mess that up. He didn't want to hurt God in, 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 in that regard by doing that. And as we live our lives, we should be absolutely convinced of our positional and unchangeable relationship with God through Jesus, but, but also at the same time be aware that what we do affects Him. And it affects our ability to walk with Him from day to day, knowing that he, how much He loves us. And, uh, you know, David had a situation with Bathsheba, that wasn't so good. Let me just say it clear, it was bad. Uh, and he said in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned. He's talking to the Lord. And done this evil in your sight. Now that's interesting how David, being a man after God's own heart, he knew that when he blew it, he said, Man, I did this against you. He was aware of the relational side of this uh, activity that, that he had gotten involved with. Nowadays, many people are very quick to call what the Bible calls sin, just call it a mistake. Just call it a, a, a shortcoming. You know, just refer to something as a weakness, an unfortunate happening. Instead of dealing with things head on, calling things what they are, we kind of soften it. You know, it's the whole idea that, you know, Jesus didn't teach, uh, or people say Jesus just taught uh, acceptance. He preached acceptance. When it's not true, he actually, re he actually preached repentance. He didn't encourage people to stay the way they are as is encouraged today, no, but he encouraged them to change, change their thinking, their believing, their whole life to go a different direction, amen? And so um, that, that's the way that Jesus dealt with it, but today, again, many times people, when we talk about what should just be called S-I-N, sin, you know, people say, oh, well, so-and-so, they're struggling with this. <laughs> they're struggling with it. And what, what, what does that mean if someone's, if someone's struggling with, with stealing? Well, how many know they're stealing? They are taking things from other people that don't belong to them. And if they're struggling with it, I guess they're working on You know, they're really working on this in their life. That means like they used to steal a couple times a week and now they just steal once a week. Right? What do we call that? A struggle? I just call that theft. You know, or this guy, man, he really has a, he, he's really struggling with women. You know, he's married and everything, but he struggles with these other women. What, what does that mean he struggles with them? 
You, you know, well, he's working on it. He's, he's working on it. So he used to commit adultery three times a week. Now he's down to two. How about we just call that sin? <laughs> How about we call, you know, if someone, if someone is lying, are they struggling with the truth? Well, what they're doing is just lying. They are telling things that are not true. And, uh, and I think if we call a spade a spade, it actually helps us individually to overcome. Now, here, here's where this kind of stuff can get twisted and messed up and actually be binding. And that's when a person only acknowledges things that are wrong and it just kind of stops there. There are so many people who feel absolutely terrible about their life. They know they're messing up. They know they're doing wrong. They feel like a scum of the earth. They feel like they can't succeed. They feel like they can't have victory in any area. And that, what's that called? That's just condemnation. And that's not what, what true Bible repentance is really about, just acknowledging that there's something wrong with you and beating yourself over the head and feeling like a dirty, rotten scoundrel and everything else. And good, you repented. No, that's, that, that's not true Bible repentance at all. But there is something that God gets involved with, and that's when a person not only feels bad about wrong behavior, but then they make the turn. They have a change in their internal processes, their thinking. They make a turn from it and are empowered by God to walk away from it and be free. There are people on both sides of this equation. Some, they just beat themselves up and they stay feeling guilty. There are others that don't approach it in that manner and they just try to self-discipline their way through life. But we know first part of the year, that's a big topic, you know, with resolutions. And so many people make commitments to change, I'm going to quit smoking, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to stop cussing, I'm going to do something else. And in a, a month, they're back to doing the things they used to do. This is not just about willpower. How many of us have discovered on our own, man, we fall short. We just simply do. But God instituted this thing called repentance. It happens from the very beginning of our walk with God. Some people don't do it. They try to accept the Lord without repenting. In other words, without a serious alteration in their thinking. They want to continue on and add the Lord to their life. They might take a 10-degree turn, but no, they do know 180. And that's why they never get on track. They never actually change and turn. And even for those of us who are saved, I'll show you this last scripture in a moment. People who are saved, sometimes they get going the wrong direction in an area of their life. And what we need to do to have victory is to make a complete shift and repent. Not just ignore it and say, well, I'm still saved. No, but acknowledge who we're sinning against and there comes a sadness. Now, that's not fun, but that's part of it. A sadness for the way things are. Therefore, a change of thinking and an empowerment by God to overcome it. And I didn't just make that up. I... That's right here in the Word. Let's look at, uh, we'll finish up over here, 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 7. 
chapter 7. See, repentance comes from a godly sorrow for sin. Verse 9, Paul said, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Notice what he said. I'm not happy just because you were sorry, but because of the end result, I kind of am. Hmm. I'm happy. Now, now what's he talking about? Because he had written them and rebuked them. <laughs> he had written them and not only affirmed their position in Christ and how they were clean, but also got all over their case about their activity, about how they were behaving. Because this church, man, they were doing some stupid, carnal, fleshy stuff. He got all over them and he said, listen, I'm not happy that you were sorry, just period, but I am glad that you got sorry and changed. I am happy that you received that word and made a change, made a, read, a course direction in your life. He said, for, for you were made sorry in a godly manner. Now, that's interesting. There's a godly sorrow. There's a sorry. You are a sorry sucker. And, uh, and it's of God. <laughs> well, this is what some, ma- some have absence in their life. And because of it, they're never able to move forward. God wants to do so much more, but he can't because they never experience godly sorrow that leads them to a change of mind. And they try to perpetuate their life with their mind going the wrong direction. You and I will never, ever go one way while our mind is going another way. If I want all of God's best, but my thinking is all entangled with this world and with the sin and junk of this world, I will not be able to walk in God's best. I must repent. Nowadays, people are so, much, so often encouraged to stand for what they think. Don't let anybody push you around. You maintain your position. And you believe whatever you want to believe. That's your right. It's your right as an American to believe whatever you want to believe. I know, but sometimes it's really dumb. It really is, because if our thinking is wrong, we should, we should desire more than anything to have it changed. And guess what? We're all wrong about something. <laughs> Not a person in here thinks perfectly about everything. That, what does that mean? We need some repentance. We need to have some repenting going on. Hopefully there's some going on today. Where you recognize, it's a godly thing. You recognize you know, I'm not thinking right about this area or I'm not doing right in this area. And you feel bad about it. Not to the end of condemnation. Not that we're going to dwell on it and become sin conscious. No, we want a righteousness consciousness, but we, in order to perpetually stay conscious of my righteousness in Christ, I've got to deal with reality of my life. And if I'm thinking wrong, going wrong, doing wrong, I need to be confronted with that and I need to have a time where I'm feeling feeling bad about it. I don't mean it has to be extended, but I, just the point where I see it. I see, I recognize this is an issue, this is a problem. And Lord, I repent. 
I change my thinking and I turn towards you. And then we're empowered to walk away from it. Not just willpower, God's power, grace power, His divine ability working in us to cause us to be overcomers. Again, now, you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to what? Salvation. Now, these people are already saved. He's talking to those in the church. He's saying this is how you access God's saving power in your life. You feel bad about it. It leads to repentance. Remember, Romans said it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Not God's heavy hand, not his stick saying, you scoundrel, you rascal. No, but I see he is good. And the way I'm going is contrary to that. The way I'm thinking is is opposite of the way God's goodness is. And so we think different. And what does it lead us to? Salvation. Do you know why some are, are missing on being saved? Not talking about eternal salvation right now. They're missing out on being saved from various things. Man, they simply won't repent. I don't know if this, man, there have been a number of situations over the years where I've witnessed people and I just wished they would repent. What do I mean? I wish they'd change their mind and go a different direction. I wish they'd leave that behavior because I could see the potential of what God could do. But stubborn, mm, just resistant because it takes a hit on your pride to admit you're wrong about something. And it hinders people from going forward. Every one of us. Well, I've been saved for 20 years. So you're still in diapers. And I say that in a general sense. That was what Paul was saying to these Hebrews. You've been, you've been saying, saved a long time, but you're not where you're supposed to be. I want to be where I'm supposed to be. And therefore, I've got to make changes when I recognize that there's an issue here. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death death so this is not just everybody feel bad about your life (laughs) no that'll just that's condemnation that's death judas felt bad about his betrayal of jesus didn't he he felt bad and what did he do he went out and hung himself (laughs) well we don't want that and we know that happens when people engage in the sorrow of this world. They just beat themselves over the head. They feel horrible about their life. They feel like they've failed in so many ways, and they dwell in that and want to commit suicide. That's not the godly sorrow that we're talking about. But there, this kind of sorrow leads, again, like we said, to a change. It leads to a repentance. Once some people are sorry they got caught, that's not, that's not godly sorrow. So uh, godly sorrow is followed by, by a voluntary act of confession and change. It is, it is acknowledging what really is in our lives. Then, man, we can make a difference. Let's not be those who are so stuck in our ways that year after year after year we're still struggling with the same exact issues. If that's the case, we have not experienced God's saving power. His power to change. And it's not because it's unavailable. It's not because God is holding back His power. It's just because we haven't reached that point where we let whatever it is that we're dealing with, struggling with, (laughs) that sin, that behavior, that thinking, we haven't let it come to that point where we repent. We repent before God. And we turn from it. 
and His grace then empowers us. Amen. Amen. God is so good. Father, we love you today. And we thank you that you have mercy and kindness toward us all. That you've made your favor and your, your grace available to every single one of us for free. And Lord, we do call upon your name. We trust in your ability. We do lean upon your word and its ability to strengthen and empower us to overcome, to move forward in life. Lord, we know that wrongdoing, it affects your heart and it affects our daily walk with you. And so we refuse to ignore it. We choose not to just act like it's not there, but we deal with it head on. And we thank you for the grace of God that's sufficient. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that has been shared, that has been shed for us and made available for all. And we thank you that by that great sacrifice, we do have the remission of sins, past, present, and future. Our sins have been washed away. We are right with you today. For this we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.